wrestling fans, welcome to another episode of Stats 101, where I take you behind the data I use for my blog, chartingtheterritories.com. This month on Stats 101, we're going to talk about a new statistic and chart that I've created. It's basically a new way of presenting a statistic I had previously created. And we're also going to talk about my trip to Montgomery, Alabama, where I visited the Alabama Department of Archives and History. And we're going to end this month's episode on an actual cliffhanger. So you have that to look forward to. First, I want to talk about the new Frequent Opponents and Partners chart. And this is going to replace a previous statistic that I had that I called the feud score, which attempted to measure uh, what I would call the intensity of a feud based on how many times it happened on various house shows and how bunched up those matches are. With the idea being, if a match is really clicking as a feud in the territory, it's going to happen multiple times all around the territory and in most cases have various rematches in certain towns with stipulation matches. So the idea was to use how often a match occurs throughout the territory to determine whether or not it was a feud, and to assign a number to it. Now, all along, there were two main issues I had with this statistic. The first is, it only took into account the number of times a match happens. If Junkyard Dog is feuding with Butch Reed in the main events, meanwhile, let's say Buddy Landell is wrestling against Carl Fergie in the prelims, if they're wrestling each other the same number of times, it would have the same feud score. Now, it usually didn't happen that way. In fact, the, the preliminary wrestlers very rarely wrestled the same person that frequently, but it did happen sometimes. And, you know, we need to know that that's not really a feud. It just so happens that the two wrestlers were booked up against one another frequently, maybe because they traveled together or they had good matches together, or they knew each other or any other reason. So I wanted to come up with a way of eliminating that the other issue was when a feud is primarily one wrestler versus more than one wrestler. Think the Junkyard Dog versus the Freebirds in 1980, Jimmy Valiant versus Paul Jones's Army, Dusty Rhodes against the Four Horsemen. Uh, the feud score only took into account how many times a very specific match occurred. Dusty Rhodes versus Lex Luger, or Dusty Rhodes versus Tully Blanchard, or Dusty and Luger against Arn and Tully, or Dusty and Magnum against, you know, Luger and Tully. And realistically, you want more information than that. You want to know how long Dusty was having matches against all the members of the Horsemen. So I've created a new... Uh, suite of statistics, and they are the frequent opponents and partners. This way, you can look at a glance for one wrestler and see which wrestlers they were wrestling against most often in any combination of tag team or singles matches, uh, but also takes into account where that match happened on the card. Going back to Junkyard Dog versus Butch Reed, if their matches are always in the main event, it's going to have a much higher score on this new metric than the Buddy Landell, Carl Fergie series, which would happen in the prelims or in the mid cards. Um, also, we also look at the frequent partners of the wrestler. So if, for example, in 1981, Junkyard Dog is feuding with the Samoans, on the frequent opponents chart, you're going to see a separate listing for JYD versus Afa, as well as JYD versus Sika. And you also really want to be able to, at a glance, see who JYD was teaming with most of the time. So we add the frequent partners metric, 
And in that particular case, you can see that most of the time, JYD was teaming with Dick Murdoch to face the Samoans, but not necessarily all the time. Sometimes Murdoch will have teamed with other partners while JYD was having singles matches with Orndorff. So I think this new way of showing it gives a much better idea of what were actually feuds, i.e. what matches were happening in important matches throughout the territory, and also what various combinations of teams were involved, because it's not always a regular full-time team like the Samoans or the Midnight Express. Sometimes you just have two of the top baby faces teaming up to uh, face the heels of the month in that territory. So you can see more of what I'm talking about on our blog at chartingtheterritories.com. And in the month of July, we are going to look at the third quarter of 1981 in Mid-South Wrestling, and also the third quarter of 1964 in the McGurk Wrestling Territory. So that is an idea of the new statistics that we have rolled out this month. And now I want to talk about my trip to the Alabama Department of Archives and History, located in the capital of Alabama, Montgomery. The Department of Archives and History has a large collection of newspapers on microfilm from hundreds and maybe even thousands of newspapers from across the state. They also have actual bound volumes for many newspapers. So think about a newspaper, take a month's worth of newspapers and bind them all together and slap a very large hardcover around it. It ends up being a very big, very heavy volume, but it's a neat way of uh, looking at the newspapers over time. But more importantly, Alabama is one of a small number of states where the archives include records from the State Athletic Commission. There are several boxes worth of various documents from the Alabama Boxing and Wrestling Commission, much of which is of no interest to wrestling fans, but some which are. The records are not complete, but for various points in time, they have information on licenses, schedules of upcoming events, wrote reports for previous events and correspondence between the commission uh, and the promoters and actually all sorts of correspondence uh, to and from the commission. Licenses were a yearly thing in Alabama and they weren't based on the calendar year. So if a wrestler starts working uh, for Goulas in April and is booked in Alabama, they will get a license uh, starting in April and it's good through the following April. So you can look through and find when Jerry Lawler got his first license to wrestle in the state or Jackie Fargo, etc. In some cases, they're listed under their real name. And in some cases, they're using one of their wrestling names. Where this can be useful is for zeroing in on the identities of the many masked wrestlers who worked in Alabama over the years for Gulf Coast or for Goulas or for whoever. As I've mentioned in previous podcasts, there is no official historical record for pro wrestling. There are a patchwork of various sites, books, and message forums, which overall do a good job of documenting things, but there are far more errors than you might think. The license records from Alabama can help not only in correcting these errors, but also offering the closest thing we can get to hard evidence proving who was, let's say, Blue Demon number 2 in 1968, or the Green Shadow in 1976, or the Medic in 1972. Even if there's no actual license for a person named the Masked Medic, we can use the process of elimination to figure out which wrestler that perhaps had a history of using the medic gimmick was in Alabama at that exact time and not wrestling there under another name. The schedules of upcoming events and show reports are of significant value to me. Keep in mind that while we generally know the main towns that promoters ran every week, there were also numerous spot shows all over the state, towns which were maybe run once a year. 
There are also instances where they try to open up a new weekly town, and maybe after a month or so, if it didn't draw well, they stopped running it. Also, there might be some towns that were run seasonally. And this was something I saw in Arkansas, where the town of Hot Springs was run weekly for a several-week period, always in the late winter and early spring. And this was done annually. And at first, I didn't know why. But as I was researching uh, and looking through the Hot Springs newspaper, I found out about the Arkansas Derby, which is actually a major thoroughbred horse race for three-year-olds held every year in April in Hot Springs. So besides that major race, there are also several weeks of smaller races in the town building up to the Arkansas Derby, and tons of tourists would come to the town every year for these races. So Leroy McGurk very smartly decided to run the town during horse racing season to try and draw from this large tourist base. Now, in some cases, the schedule of upcoming events also had handwritten notes on it, sometimes listing the attendance, sometimes listing the gate, and sometimes both. Now, these were clearly handwritten in by the commission after the event. So the promotion submits a, uh, what I'll call a calendar. It's literally a sheet of paper that says Monday we're in Birmingham, Tuesday we're in Dothan, so on and so forth. Uh, after receiving this, the commission at some point would handwrite in the attendance or the gate from these figures as they were reported by the promotion. Uh, the show reports, while not listing results or anything like that, those listed the amount of taxes paid to the commission and also any license fees for new wrestlers that started on that day. I think the licenses were $5 for a year in the early 70s. So if we can confirm for a fact what the percentage paid to the commission was, was it 5%, 7.5%, 10%, whatever, we can use the actual amount of tax dollars paid to extrapolate what the gate was. And by comparing those gates, which don't have attendance figures, to the gates and attendance figures we have in later years from the schedule of events, we might be able to hone in on the estimated attendance for those shows. Or at the very least, we can get a good feel for the ebb and flow and see when attendance was higher or lower than normal. As for the correspondence folders, those can be a lot of fun to look through. In addition to boring letters between the commission and the various promoters, you forgot to sign the check for taxes last week, uh, this wrestler needs to renew their license, etc., etc., there are also letters written by fans to the commission. And yes, there is the occasional, I watched on TV as the bad guys hit my favorite wrestler with a chair, you guys need to stop this and protect my favorite wrestler type of letter, which is always a hoot to read. Additionally, at the Alabama Department of Archives and History, there is a folder with the wonderful title, The Selma Incident, 1976. Now, of course, the most famous Selma incident was probably about 11 years earlier. Selma was the starting point for three protest marches from Selma to the state capital of Montgomery, organized by local civil rights leaders in March of 1965. The Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, was the site of the Sunday Bloody Sunday conflict during the first of the, these three marches, where many of the marchers were attacked with billy clubs and tear gas by state troopers and county posse Fast forward 11 years, the so-called Selma incident was far less significant in historical scope. Well, unless you were a wrestling fan named Odelia Cherry, who was attending the matches on Saturday, August 14th at the National Guard Armory. After one of the matches, Heels, Sweet Daddy Banks, and the Green Shadow taunted the crowd from inside the ring. The crowd then began to throw chairs in the ring, and Banks, in his infinite wisdom, decided to throw them back into the crowd. 
One such chair hit Miss Odelia Cherry, described as an elderly lady, and she required medical treatment. This incident led to the weekly bouts in Selma being halted by the police chief. So the folder contains various firsthand reports from the inspectors uh, assigned by the commission to attend the matches. And it also contains an audio cassette of the match, if you're into that sort of thing. This trip to Montgomery was my third one. In previous visits, I looked through the various commission records and put together a list of known events in the state at a couple of different points in time. I also got some newspaper ads and articles for shows in one of the main weekly towns that I didn't already have, and I had gotten these from the collection of the actual newspapers in the large bound volumes I described previously. In my previous two visits, they were not yet allowing visitors to access uh, the microfilm. They'd actually shut that area down um, in the COVID uh, era. Uh, but this spring, they finally opened that section, section of the department back up. So this trip was all about the microfilm. I had one weekly town that I still needed to get clippings for, so that was first on my agenda, but second was trying to locate ads for spot shows in a large number of small towns. Recall in my previous visits, I had a list of shows that I compiled, uh, held all over the state. So now armed with this info, if I knew a small town in Alabama had a show on September 5th of some year, I could look at the microfilm for the local paper in the days leading up to that show in the hopes of finding an ad or an article regarding the event. Most of the towns on my list were of the spot town variety, but a couple of them had regular events for at least some period of time. So I was very hopeful I could find ads for a decent number of shows, virtually all of which would not have been previously documented by anybody, and I could add these to my records. Sadly, this trip was not as successful in that regard as I had hoped. The majority of the small town newspapers I looked through did not have any ads or mentions of the shows. In many cases, the newspapers in these towns were really small, sometimes just eight pages. And sometimes these weren't even daily newspapers, just once or maybe twice a week. This gives you an idea of how small these towns were. So it's my theory that the promoters didn't need to advertise the shows in these small towns. Uh, the once-a-year wrestling card was likely, and this truly is no exaggeration, the biggest thing to happen in that town all year. Everybody just probably knew that wrestling was coming next week, so paying for an ad was a waste of money on the part of the promoter. But the trip wasn't a total loss. First off, I was able to get everything I needed from the one weekly town on my list. In addition, I did find ads or articles for a handful of shows in the following towns. Albertville and Scottsboro, both of which were ghoulist towns, Andalusia and Chatham, which were Gulf Coast towns, and Utah, spelled E-U-T-A-W, Greenville and Hoax Bluff, which were towns run by Billy Golden. While most of the state was run either by Goulas or Gulf Coast in the first half of the 70s, there was an area in the middle part of the state that was uh, part of Golden's small territory. If you listen to Charting the Territories regularly, you may recall that Golden ran the lower half of Louisiana along with Ani Wiki Wiki in 1968 and 1969, and they were loosely affiliated with Leroy McGurk. By the early 70s, however, Golden was running shows in Alabama, Columbus, Mississippi, and possibly also Rome, Georgia. The ads for many of Golden's shows in the early 70s list him as the promoter, but interestingly, lists Goulas and Welch as the matchmakers. The crew usually consisted of Billy's son, Jimmy Golden, Burrhead Jones, and a number of wrestlers who generally worked for Goulas and Gulf Coast at various times. Perhaps when a wrestler's run in the Goulas uh, main circuit was done, 
Goolis and Welch would take them off TV and book them into Golden's Towns for a while and then bring them back where they would appear fresh to the fans in Nashville, Chattanooga, Memphis, who hadn't seen them for a while. There are rare occasions when one or more of Goulas's top stars would make a one-off appearance for Golden, but generally speaking, he had a regular crew of guys that were working full-time for him while they were there. Also want to mention there's a restaurant in Montgomery called the Tower Tap Room. Most of the items on their menu have catchy names that are pop culture references. There's a sandwich named the Phoebe Buffet, a salad named the MacGyver, an appetizer named the Double Secret Probation, and for wrestling fans, there's an appetizer named the Ric Flair. What is the Ric Flair, you may ask? It is cauliflower fried in tempura, house buffalo sauce, blue cheese crumbles, and dressing. What any of that has to do with the Nature Boy, I do not know, save for perhaps the concept of wrestlers having cauliflower ears. I likely will return to Montgomery at some point later this year. I had mentioned that I had a list of known events for some periods of time, but not all. Uh, On a future trip, I may dig deeper into the schedules of upcoming events and the show reports to put together a more complete list of known events. And then, now knowing which newspapers did run ads in those smaller towns, I can focus on those towns and get even more shows to add to my records. I'm always on the hunt for finding previously unknown towns that were run regularly. Which brings us to Arkansas. My pal David Bixenspan, wrestling journalist and co-host of Between the Sheets, shared with me recently a treasure trove of documents he had gotten from the Jack Pfeffer collection at Notre Dame. Included in these documents was correspondence between Pfeffer and Leroy McGurk, and as I looked through all the documents, I found a booking calendar for a one-week period in 1968. This was when Leroy had brought former boxing great Joe Lewis in for a couple of weeks. Uh, As I looked over this booking calendar, I saw all the regular weekly towns that I already had in my records. Shreveport and Tulsa on Monday, Little Rock, Baton Rouge, and Monroe on Tuesdays, etc. However, there was one town run that week on Friday that previously had not been on my radar. So my spidey senses began to tingle. Going back through my master Excel spreadsheet of the 15,000-plus known shows I have from the McGurk territory over the years, I found one other listing for this town. And that show was also on a Friday night in 1968, earlier in the year. And Friday nights had been a night where I was fairly certain I was missing shows from. We know that McGurk ran at least two and usually three or sometimes even four shows a night throughout the week, But for the most part, my records for Friday only had one regular town, and that was Oklahoma City, up through 1971. So, knowing that this one town was run at least twice in one year on the same night of the week, on a week, on a night where we're almost certainly missing a regular town, that, to me, is good enough evidence to convince me to research the town further. And yes, I'm intentionally not saying what town it is, for the time being. Now, there are no newspapers for this town available online in any of these searchable archive sites, so in order to research it, I need to go to Arkansas and visit once again the state archives in Little Rock. Now, besides searching their microfilm records for this mystery town, there is one other Arkansas town still on my to-do list. So worst case scenario, I will be able to cross that town off the list and get everything I need from it. But maybe, just maybe... I will also find many years' worth of records for a McGurk town that has not previously been documented. Will I succeed? 
Am I blowing things way out of proportion? Am I the biggest wrestling nerd there ever was? The answers to these questions and more will come on the next episode of Stats 101, coming in August. To be the first to know when new podcasts from Charting the Territories, including Stats 101, are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingthepodcast.com. Stats 101 is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network.